The inspiration for this episode came from four books that I've read recently, which we will link to in the show notes. The first is Class by Stephanie Land, her sophomore book, which functions like a sequel to her smash hit Made, Evicted by Matthew Desmond, a Pulitzer Prize-winning masterpiece that reads more like a novel than heavily researched nonfiction, as well as his more recent book, Poverty by America, which felt like Desmond's impassioned and no-punches-pulled perspective on all the things that we're afraid to say out loud about our relationship with America's poor. And finally, Palaces for the People, Eric Kleinenberg's work about the way an investment in social infrastructure rather than just physical infrastructure helps communities thrive and grow, and how receding further and further into our own little private lives spells disaster for everyone but the very wealthy. So in that sense, I think you can think about this episode a little bit like an audio book report amalgamation, both the research that they have inspired me to do and also the connections that their respective works allowed me to make as I was kind of reading all of them in the same time period. But my interest in this topic originally began after I read Land's book, Made, which was a book that NPR called An Unflinching Portrayal of a Single Mom's Will to Survive. It was an instant hit, and in 2021, Netflix turned her memoir into a limited series that tells her story over 10 poignant, gut-wrenching episodes. And after I watched it, I casually mentioned it to a friend that I thought it was excellent. And my friend said, yeah, you know, I couldn't watch it. I had to turn it off. It was way too triggering. Because having grown up with a single mother who struggled to make ends meet, she said, it brought up too many distressing emotions to watch that same struggle play out in 4K. And this response, I soon learned, was actually quite common. When I posted a short video about the series on social media back in 2022, many of the 120 comments said something similar that this show felt like watching my own childhood, or this series made me feel seen after I fled domestic violence and financial abuse. And the response was common because struggling to survive in the United States is common. According to Census Bureau data for 2022, 38 million Americans live in poverty, which was defined, depending on family size, as subsisting on anywhere between about $6,000 and $14,000 of income per year per person. Now, at 38 million strong, that means this group represents more than 11% of us. America's spending on welfare as a share of GDP is actually the second biggest in the world. France spends the most, but only if you include the things that we typically associate with middle and upper class Americans, honestly, things that we talk about on this very show, like tax-advantaged retirement benefits and 529 plans and the mortgage interest deduction that's available to homeowners and child tax credits. Because while you wouldn't often think about the tax break that you get for contributing to your 401k plan as a welfare benefit, it ultimately does have the same net effect for the government balance sheet as something like the earned income tax credit. It costs money to provide those deductions and credits through lost tax revenue. If you exclude all of these tax breaks and you only focus on the programs directed at low-income citizens, the U.S only ranks 23rd in its spending as a percentage of GDP. 
according to the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, or OECD. So if you count everything we spend on upper-middle-class Americans, we're second. If you strip all that away and focus only on the money spent on lower-income Americans, we're 23rd. Welcome back to The Money with Katie Show. Today, we are talking about what it means to be poor in the United States and why it remains such a common experience despite our otherwise overwhelming abundance. So I want to start today with what I think of as the poverty paradox, Because the uncomfortable truth is that many of the elements of Stephanie Land's experience are heartbreaking in their ordinariness. Financial abuse, being stuck in the sort of dependency doom loop of government assistance, low mental bandwidth for anything beyond basic survival week to week. And while visualizations of class dynamics, conversations about class dynamics often represent these things as linear spectrums or pyramid-style depictions wherein each class is a discrete and separate entity, the reality is that the threads of these different classes are actually inextricably woven together. The middle class and upper classes rely on the labor of the working poor, which was the focus of Matt Desmond's work, and particularly his latest book, Poverty by America. So like I mentioned, He is a Pulitzer Prize-winning sociologist, and he has long written about the fact that we've had 50 years of stasis in our efforts to reduce poverty, but not for a lack of spending, right? A lack of money, at least at the federal level, isn't really the issue, he argues. Public welfare spending has only risen since the 1980s, which is a period that we will often point to as a time when benefits were slashed. Insert Reagan drop here. But I had always assumed when people talked about how we had the money to solve poverty, they meant we were just choosing not to spend it. But that's not the case at all. We are spending it, just not in ways that are doing much to address the root cause. We could, of course, spend more, but spending differently is probably closer to the solution that experts like Desmond would recommend we start with. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. We'll come right back to this after a quick break. This episode was brought to you by Domain Money. We get lots of emails asking for specific financial advice, but I am not a certified financial professional. So I was on the hunt for a flat fee CFP service whose financial philosophies align with mine. And then I met Katie Song of Domain Money and her team of CFPs. From our first meeting, I was sold on her perspective. So I went through their process to test it out. And we didn't start with asset allocation or a budget. We started with my vision and values for my life. Then after turning over a comprehensive deep dive into all my finances, they built a roadmap of actions that would turn that vision into a reality. Because domain money doesn't manage your assets or sell financial products, there are no perverse incentives at play. You pay a one-time project fee for a clear, actionable roadmap that you can follow and feel confident in managing things yourself. Need more help? You just pay by the hour. 
If you're in the market for a financial professional and you want to hire a fee-only CFP, we love the folks at Domain. Learn more and get a free consultation with a domain advisor at moneywithkatie.com slash domain money. That's moneywithkatie.com slash domain money. There are a few major examples of ineffective attempts at solving poverty, and all roads eventually lead us back to this core issue of exploitation. So Desmond writes, quote, poverty isn't simply the condition of not having enough money. It's the condition of not having enough choice and being taken advantage of because of that. When we ignore the role that exploitation plays in trapping people in poverty, we end up designing policy that's weak at best and ineffective at worst, end quote. One such powerful example I learned that I think really illustrates this well pertains to housing. So, for example, the fight to raise incomes at the bottom of the spectrum, either through tax credits or vouchers or higher minimum wages, without first addressing the affordable housing crisis, often means that those gains end up being realized by poor people's landlords, not by the poor themselves. And the way that the housing voucher program was developed in the U.S. is quite illustrative of the issue. There have been attempts in the past to solve the affordable housing crisis, namely public housing complexes around the mid-century. The goal was to basically divorce profit-seeking from housing, right? To just provide it as affordably as possible to people who needed it without there being a profit-seeking motive attached. According to the organization Greater Greater Washington, what started with positive intent quickly deteriorated. So the federal government intended to dedicate funds to build nearly a million public housing units by 1955, but seeds of what ultimately caused its failure were sown in that original legislation. The laws that established these projects permitted housing segregation and they capped federal contributions to public housing. So as such, it left maintenance and upkeep and all the money that that requires to the local housing authorities that were managing the housing projects, which in turn hired other third-party property management companies, which then said, well, we're going to blame inconsistent upkeep on insufficient rental income. So as you can expect, the housing rapidly deteriorated and the process cemented this public perception of rundown high rises in the inner city as what public housing was destined to become. And what replaced public housing? A public private partnership. We always know that turns out to be a, a red flag of housing vouchers under President Nixon giving low income people rent assistance to go rent apartments on the private market instead. Except, well, you can probably imagine how something like that may backfire if you're like, wait, why would it backfire? Consider that the idea was first posed not by Washington policy wonks, but by the National Association of Realtors. Back then, they were known as the National Association of Real Estate Boards. But they basically argued, hey, rent certificates would actually be superior to public housing. And ultimately, they prevailed. 
So to put a finer point on it in case it's still uh, materializing here, in Milwaukee, where Desmond lived for years with low-income people, the experience that he wrote about uh, in his book Evicted, renters with housing vouchers were charged an average of $55 more each month compared to unassisted renters who lived in similar apartments in similar neighborhoods. Now, $55 might not sound like much, but consider that the rent is $550 or $600. That's what market rent was. So we're talking a 10% increase charged to voucher holders. And Desmond estimated that systematically overcharging voucher holders cost taxpayers an additional $3.6 million each year in Milwaukee alone enough to provide 588 more families with housing assistance had it been used as it was intended. And so the point is that dumping more money onto that fire just kind of accelerates the burn. And in that sense, you can give poor people more money, but without access to the markets of the things that they need, whether because of low credit scores or high debt-to-income ratios or a lack of affordable housing options, the money is more likely to just end up in the wrong hands. The other shining example of a well-meaning policy measure inadvertently enriching the already rich is the Earned Income Tax Credit, which is a federal tax credit for working people with low and moderate incomes. In 2020, 25 million workers received an average payment of $2,411. So think for a moment about how a corporation that employs a large contingent of low-wage workers might feel about this tax credit that effectively subsidizes their ability to pay low wages. Consider the case of Walmart, which established initiatives to help their employees claim the EITC and has supported legislation that requires large employers to notify their workers about the benefit. It's important to note here that low-wage work is more prevalent in the U.S. than any other high-income nation. Nearly one in four Americans work a low-wage job, compared to only 5% of people in Italy, 10% of Japan, and 11% of Spain. A few other high-income capitalist democracies. That is to say, a massive low-income workforce is not required for this type of system to function. But learning about this problem starts to resemble an intricate sort of pulley system because we are told corporations can't afford to pay their workforces more because it would cause the cost of our cheap goods to rise and that we, the end consumer, would end up paying for that. But we are already paying for it. This is the perhaps oversimplified, perhaps rhetorical question. When companies aren't paying their people, and the government is filling in the gaps, where do you think the government is getting that money? It's the old $15 Big Mac example. The idea that if you pay someone who works at McDonald's $22 an hour, then your food will necessarily become astronomically more expensive. And if you're already living close to the edge, if you are not far outside the realm of a McDonald's paycheck yourself, that might feel like a deal you cannot afford. But lucky for us, we can fact check this type of threat because McDonald's workers do make $22 an hour in other countries like Denmark. In 2021, The Economist found that a Big Mac costs 
less in Denmark at $4.90 than in the United States at $5.66 at market exchange rates between the Danish krone and the U.S. dollar. But Desmond would probably caution us here. The idea that the wealthy among us will have to give a little or get a little less in order for others among us to have more is probably true. But as you'll see toward the end of this episode, he makes a pretty compelling argument for why that is still better for everyone. Then, of course, there are just the areas where we make it more expensive to be poor. The financial markets, for their part, benefit from the poor as well. Desmond found that in 2021, 9% of account holders paid nearly 84% of the $11 billion in overdraft fees that were charged. And the average account balance of that 9% was less than 350 bucks. You could also consider the payday lending or subprime mortgage industries, which all but depend on an unbanked or credit distressed population of people who are so desperate for access to cash that they will accept ridiculous terms to get it, like an APR of 400%. Again, it's not just a lack of money in many cases, but a lack of access. Now, these systems can be punishingly unforgiving. Take this excerpt from a recent story in the New York Times about a 49-year-old social worker in Seattle named Crystal Audette who lived in her car. She earned a gross income of $72,000 per year, but paying for a series of unlucky or uninformed decisions in the early aughts slowly siphoned away her take-home pay each month until she basically could no longer afford housing in her town where the median rent was $2,200 per month. To be sure, it's not like she didn't make any mistakes. I mean, she posted a bad check in 2001. It went to court. It ended up on her record. It damaged her credit. But then she had medical issues that piled onto that debt. And quote, her free fall into unsustainable debt began last December when her car made a horrible sputtering sound and died. With poor credit, the only loan she could find came at a punishing cost. For the 2015 Ford Fusion with over 100,000 miles, she is being charged interest of 27.99%, equaling a payment of $398 per month, which is one-tenth of her take-home pay. Medical bills in the thousands arrived for her Crohn's disease. She missed two rent payments, and then the landlord raised her rent $248 a month, down the spiral that led her to homelessness were a series of forks. Choices between bad and very bad that she made, many in moments of desperation. She spent a week at a hotel. Expedia offered to break up her payments, which she is now paying off at the rate of $138 a month. To avoid her unpaid rent going to collections, she signed an installment plan, agreeing to pay $495 per month. By midsummer, Miss Audette's take-home pay of nearly $4,300 a month was hollowed out by bills totaling nearly $2,600, end quote. So it's a sort of negative feedback loop where mistakes are compounding at a punishing rate as your desperation makes you even more of a mark to other predatory options. This mobile homeless population to which Miss Audette belonged has grown since the pandemic. USA Today calls it vehicle residency, and it represents a unique strain of being down on one's luck because these are people who were living close to the edge and they were laid off, or they were suddenly unable to make mortgage payments or rent payments. Others describe doing it sporadically, 
getting into more permanent shelter when they can afford it, and then getting back into that never-ending cycle of just waiting for the rug to be pulled out from under them again. Roughly half of the mobile homeless in Denver, Colorado, who were interviewed for the piece, were still employed like Miss Audette. They were working all day and then returning home to their vehicle at night to sleep, showering in portable outdoor bathrooms or in gyms. Still, the top comment on this article is very telling. Despite the fact that the journalist clearly broke down the subject's finances, detailing the way 2600 of Miss Audette's $4,300 in monthly paychecks went toward medical debt, collections for missed rent payments, and a car note at 28%, leaving her with just $1,700 in free cash flow in a town where median rent for a one-bedroom apartment was $2,200, the top comment reads, I still cannot quite understand why she is homeless with take-home pay of more than $50,000 per year. Something is missing here. It highlights the way we are trained to be suspicious of people like Miss Audette, to assume someone's trying to pull one over on us or cheat the system, why someone would voluntarily live out of their vehicle out of commitment to an elaborate ruse, I have no idea, but ultimately, it was a white lie and a relatively small sum of money that got her out of her situation. Given her credit score, she was unable to qualify for an apartment. Fortunately, a few housing activists at her church coached her on how to approach potential landlords and specifically on what to omit. So she ended up leaving her most recent apartment off her rental history. And since she was making payments on the unpaid rent, it didn't appear on her credit report. Quote, she was nearly in tears when she heard that she had been approved, but almost lost the apartment when she could not provide the security deposit. The church where she had been parking stepped in, ending her homelessness for a little more than $2,000." End quote. I felt a pit in my stomach when I read that line. How many times have I frittered away an amount that would be literally life-changing to someone else, interrupting a very hard-to-break cycle, like ending their homelessness. We'll continue after a quick break. So next, I want to talk about where we place blame and criticism of Stephanie Land's new book, Class. The prevalence of low-wage work within the context of a national ethos that valorizes building oneself up from nothing, the American dream, makes for a very fascinating societal conversation around what it means then to be poor. As we've covered on the show before, there is a deeply, if subconsciously held belief in the U.S. specifically, that one's own bad choices are often to blame for poverty. I've spent a lot of time thinking about this as someone who has never personally experienced the impossible choices that poverty presents, but operates in online circles where you'll often find broad generalizations about mistakes that the quote-unquote poor make. After all, to acknowledge that any truly middle-class family is only a few missed rent payments away from the slippery slope of poverty is much more terrifying than the detached conclusion that being poor is a choice, or that simply avoiding bad decisions, not bad luck, is enough to evade it. This is why I'm particularly interested in exploring our reactions to poverty, too, like that commenter's suspicion of Miss Audette's struggle. 
the judgment we so often levy on those who, through bad decisions, bad luck, or more often both, find themselves losing their grip on a lower class or middle class life. Here, Land's new book, Class, offers an interesting opportunity because usually we focus exclusively on the praise that books generate. But in this case, I think it's more telling to explore the criticism. Because there's something I noticed about the reception of Class, which was a brutally honest depiction of Land's years at the University of Montana. So just to take a step back, when Stephanie Land went to the University of Montana, she was effectively doing what we always tell people in her situation to do, to go get an education, to go try to better yourself so you can go earn more money, right? And yet the reception to her retelling of this experience was very interesting. Criticizing a memoir is funky territory, since the line between criticizing the book stylistically and criticizing the author's life is blurred. But there's a small and vocal contingent of critics of her work, particularly on Goodreads, whose feedback essentially amounts to she's whining, she's acting like a victim, they call out decisions that they think are selfish or immature or nonsensical. And I noticed a lot of these critics took exception to the fact that she would like go out and drink or that she was dating or that she was in her 30s, something to the effect of like, well, I thought she was working 24 seven. I didn't know she was going out and having any fun. The other popular strain of criticism pertains to financial choices that she made. So in one instance, someone references a scene where she takes her daughter out one evening so that they can get haircuts. And the reviewer was really stuck on this and basically deemed it irresponsible to treat herself and her daughter to such an outing in her position. And one thing was very clear across all these reviews that were negative. The vibe was, it's hard for me to feel bad for her because she was making mistakes. And a common refrain in this line of questioning is to point to a person with very little who still owns or does something that we associate with riches. Like a smartphone is a very common example. So in other words, well, if you're so poor, why do you have an iPhone? But in many cases, in this example specifically, this is this individual's only computer. It is their only device that has internet access. It is how they plan their childcare. It's how they receive their work schedule. It's how they make appointments with government agencies or file paperwork. And Desmond, who lived in rooming houses and trailer parks for years as an ethnographer in order to write Evicted, was up close and personal with very poor individuals in 2008 and 2009, and he became friends with many of them. So writing about that experience later in Poverty by America, he says, quote, Poverty can cause anyone to make decisions that look ill-advised and even downright stupid to those of us unbothered by scarcity, end quote. I learned that there's actually even a name for this phenomenon. It's called the bandwidth tax, which describes the way existing in a chronic state of resource scarcity reduces your cognitive capacity more than going a full night without sleep. But I will admit there were parts of class that were difficult to read things that I bet Land herself would probably characterize as a bad decision or something that she regrets. But it occurs to me that making her readers feel bad for her was not her objective in writing this book, but rather to do something a little more complex, to highlight the way there is a certain archetypical poor person who we feel is deserving of sympathy or help. 
And what I think Land's books do well is highlight how complicated the experience of poverty can be psychologically and physically. So I find it a little poetic that one of the largest themes of her books is about how poor people's choices are scrutinized more harshly, and yet criticism of the book itself tends to focus on judging some of the choices she made when she was poor. Her story is probably the most accurate representation of the shoots and ladders class system in the U.S. She grew up middle class, but it's not as far of a fall from the middle to the working poor as most people would probably like to believe, which makes poverty something that happens to someone else. Land wrote that she heard feedback after made that she deserved to make it out, and she says that her response was always, yeah, everyone does. Nobody deserves to be trapped in that cycle. Still, there are a few interesting bright spots and areas of promise here that I want to talk about. So Desmond's call for acknowledgement of our complicity, this idea that poverty exists because it benefits those of us in the middle and upper classes, it was poignant and uncomfortable. But it was uncomfortable for me in a way that I knew was deserved as I wrote this episode from the safety behind the metaphoric gates of my upscale suburban neighborhood, uh, to put it simply, his conclusion was basically, when you in the upper class are enriched by buying cheap stuff, or you benefit from cheap labor, or you see S&P 500 index funds rising in value, you are profiting from the pain of this underclass, very simply. And he called for the divestment from those systems. Don't shop from those businesses. Don't be a shareholder in those companies. And as a personal finance content creator, that introduced quite a bit of cognitive dissonance for me. Because I have to be honest, I don't foresee a future right now wherein I don't invest in the stock market. Although I know he's right. I know I am a shareholder, the same shareholder that I criticize when I talk about excessive corporate profits. Who do I think those profits are benefiting? Me, the shareholder, and also probably you, the shareholder. Same goes for free checking accounts with major banks. They're only free, he pointed out, if you have the funds to maintain minimum balances and not overdraw them. They aren't so free for the poor. So what do we do about that? about the way our current framework looks at someone who is, for whatever reason, down on their luck, and instead of reaching out a hand to pull them out of the depths of misery, extends an open palm to profit from the misfortune. There are a few potential solutions, some of which actually came from Kleinenberg's palaces for the people that I thought were quite novel and realistic. Kleinenberg's entire thesis struck me as an instructive complement to some of the issues that were raised in Desmond's and Land's books. So rather than just investing in the physical infrastructure of our country, we have to invest in the social infrastructure. And this, I learned, mostly pertains to public spaces like parks and libraries, but more generally, it represents an approach to building communal spaces that are conducive to community building, something that Kleinenberg sees as a way to break these cycles and offer people more support. For example, he highlighted how simple decisions about how places like daycares are run can facilitate or inhibit connection. Quote, social infrastructures that promote efficiency tend to discourage interaction and the formation of strong ties. 
One recent study, for instance, shows that a daycare center that encourages caregivers and parents to walk in and wait for their children, often inside the classroom and generally at the same time, fosters more social connections and supportive relationships than ones where managers allow parents to come in on their own schedules and then hurry through drop-off and pickup so they can quickly return to their private lives, end quote. Another example that stuck with me pertained to transforming urban blight. So there are hundreds of empty lots in Chicago, which is Kleinenberg's hometown, that became hotbeds for crime, drug dealing, and a general sense of unease. They're overgrown, they're ignored, and when you walk past them, you kind of hurry up. You don't want to be near these places. So some might remember the broken windows theory of crime control that suggests that something as simple as a broken window can increase criminal activity because it implies to those who see it that the area is not heavily policed and that people generally do not take good care of it. And the policy response to broken windows theory was, more often than not, heavier policing. But Kleinenberg points out the obvious. Why not focus on fixing the metaphoric window instead? One way that cities have been experimenting with fixing their metaphoric broken windows, whether that comes in the form of run-down abandoned houses, empty lots, or something else, is transforming these spaces into pocket parks and community gardens. So they clean up the space, they plant trees and raised beds, they put in benches and flowers, they just make it a nice place to be. And it's really encouraging because research into the effectiveness of these efforts found that not only did crime in the immediate vicinity decrease, but so did crime in the surrounding area. And these efforts are, by public funding standards, exceedingly affordable. Kleinenberg's perspective is that creating more of this social infrastructure strengthens communities, which creates fertile soil, pun intended, for other positive change. And he emphasizes how we used to take more pride in our infrastructure, the degradation of which kind of signals this broader shift toward funding our individual interests and being, dare I say, less patriotic. Quote, for decades, anti-tax ideology has whittled down the public funds that we need to build and maintain all kinds of critical infrastructures. Generations ago, Americans took great pride in the power and resilience of our ultra-modern systems. Majestic dams and bridges, sprawling railways, reliable electric grids, clean waterworks, verdant parklands from coast to coast. Today, these public goods are in shambles, and instead of lifting us to reach for something greater, infrastructure is now a source of shame and embarrassment, end quote. Yeesh. As we established earlier, this is an intricate pulley system, and poverty is connected to all of the other social maladies that we care about. It's connected to crime, violence, mental health. So when social investment in communities are stronger, the thinking goes, crime rates are then lower. Support systems are bolstered. Safer, affordable housing everywhere is more possible because people are less vulnerable to exploitation. And then there's another seemingly obvious tweak a more concerted effort to make sure families actually receive the funds that are earmarked for them. So I hesitate to say it's obvious or that it would be easy to implement because I assume if it were, it would already have happened. But I do think that making sure needy families actually receive the funds that are being allocated to them is a pretty obvious place to start. 
So, for example, right now, the federal money earmarked for Temporary Assistance for Needy Families funds, also known as TAMP funds, gets distributed to states to spend however they see fit, which lends itself to inefficient spending at best and outright corruption at worst. TAMP was designed to work the same way that Social Security and the Earned Income Tax Credit works, that is, by providing direct financial assistance to people. And while those programs are not perfect for reasons that we have discussed already, part of the issue at hand is that programs like TAMF aren't really working as direct assistance. Take the Mississippi welfare fraud case, for example. Estimates peg the waste in that scandal at around $94 million. The money, which was intended to go to some of the poorest families in the poorest state in America, instead went to a variety of corrupt pet projects, like building a volleyball stadium at the University of Southern Mississippi and paying Brett Favre $1.1 million, yeah, that Brett Favre, $1.1 million for speeches he never gave and even payouts in the $5 million range to this washed-up wrestler and his buddies, and they spent it on, like, rehab and first-class flights and God knows what else. Meanwhile, 20% of people who live in Mississippi live in poverty. Then you've got other issues, like some states that are not even spending their TAMF dollars. Tennessee, for example, has a massive surplus of unspent funds, more than $700 million by some estimates, which is one of the largest reserves in the country. 15% of people in Tennessee live in poverty. Oklahoma, for its part, spent only 13% of its federal TAMP funds on direct cash assistance to families. Their monthly payment to a single parent with two kids has remained flat at $292 per month since 1996, and 15% of Oklahomans live below the poverty line. So the broader point is that it's not like the money's not there, but it's not being spent, or it's being spent on the wrong things, like rehab and first-class flights for wrestlers. So how can we judge whether or not it's working if people are, broadly speaking, not receiving it? And it strikes me that simplifying the process, like maybe just delivering the funds directly to families instead of giving it to the states to distribute in the same way that Social Security just arrives as a direct deposit every month, would do a lot to cut down on the fraud and corruption and misallocation of these budgets. Because we know the government can do it. Like, we all got direct deposits during the pandemic, didn't we? And then finally, I think something like a cooperative model for housing is worth exploring. In Evicted, Desmond concludes that having a dignified, stable place to live is the bedrock on which all other progress is made. So thinking of housing as a cold, profit-seeking enterprise for career landlords and the like is at odds with this goal in our current paradigm. Seven eviction notices are issued every single minute in America. And while the laws vary by state, we have relatively little protection for renters, particularly those of the low-income variety. But tenant activism is an interesting bright spot in the fight for affordable housing. So take an example from Minneapolis, where a group of tenants in conditions that can only be described as slumlord-induced fought back against their landlord and one. The tenants formed a tenants' right organization known as the United Renters for Justice to collectively bargain against their landlord, who had denied timely and reasonable repairs, 
and was hiking rent despite making no improvements to the property. So leaky roofs, pest infestations, other serious issues plagued the building, and they felt that his refusal to keep his buildings up to code was negligent. So the tenants brought a class action lawsuit against the men who owned their building. One was the public-facing landlord, but the other, whose name was actually on the mortgage, had technically been disallowed from renting properties for abuses in the past. So the landlord, he attempts to evict all of them, citing the fact that, oh, I just want to sell the building, I just want to move on. It's not retaliatory, but given his history, the court did not see it that way. So the tenants went on a rent strike where everyone who lived in the building, they all banded together and collectively agreed not to pay rent until things were resolved. And this was actually a common tactic in the early 20th century and during the Great Depression to protest price gouging and rent hikes. But you rarely hear about collective bargaining from the renter class today. Ultimately, the tenants were fighting for a model known as commoning, which describes the creation of homes that are collectively owned and controlled by the residents. Housing in this model does not create wealth. It does not drive speculative behavior. It does not produce profits. It is just for living. A popular version of this arrangement, limited equity cooperatives, involves residents purchasing co-op shares and then paying low monthly fees to cover the building's upkeep. So a quote from the New York Times article read, if a family moves out, it can sell its shares for slightly above the original purchase price, but only slightly. Bidding up the sale, even if there are plenty of takers, is seen as anathema to the social mission of the cooperative, which is to establish permanently affordable housing end quote. And if you live in New York City, you're probably familiar with this. It's where these co-ops started in the 1960s. So back to the story. In 2018, this tenants' rights organization in Minneapolis approached Land Bank Twin Cities, a bank that raises capital with the intention of preserving affordable housing. But before they could sort out the financing, a court decision reverted ownership to the landlord in the meantime. So the tenants who are on this rent strike, they hold out hope. And in October, the landlord and owner settled the lawsuit for $18.5 million. Quote, a lawsuit that began with a humble emergency tenant remedies action for basic repairs filed by a pair of fledgling organizers had ended in a huge payout. More than $13 million would be distributed to more than 4,400 tenants who had lived in the affected buildings since 2012, end quote. Now, this group has enough to purchase the buildings from their landlord, except for one problem. He declines their offer. He won't sell it to them. Now, remember, he's trying to evict them, and being evicted severely damages your ability to rent housing in the future. So the tenants were continuing to take a big risk by not breaking solidarity. They counter-offered him $7 million for the buildings, which were valued at only $6 million. And it looked like a lost cause, but then, a miracle, the court ruled that those evictions were retaliatory and he could not legally evict them. So his only choice was to accept their offer. The tenants bought their building in a massive victory for tenants' rights. 
Now, the fact that these tenants had established such a strong community with one another, interwoven enough to collectively bargain, strike, and win a complex lawsuit was shocking to me, if for no other reason than I have lived in apartment buildings before and I didn't know any of my neighbors. So here, I think Kleinenberg's theory that investing in building stronger communities creates the preconditions necessary for other positive changes feels really loud and clear to me. All right, to close us out today, we've been all over the place, haven't we? Simplifying direct assistance and seeking cooperatively owned models for the things that we need creates equity and distributes power in classes that have traditionally been exploited. Moreover, I think there's an important message to be gleaned here about bringing more curiosity and more openness to our fellow humans and how we find ourselves in circumstances that we didn't plan for. I think anyone who reads these books will gain a lot from them, so I recommend all of them. They will all be in the show notes, but I want to read this passage toward the end of Poverty by America because it's quite long, but it beautifully illustrates what living in a country without poverty would feel like. An America without poverty would be neither a utopia nor a land of gray uniformity. Look around. There are plenty of capitalist countries with far less poverty than us. Walt Disney World would still exist in a poverty-free America. There would still be markets and private property rights. Hermes handbags, Tesla cars, Levi's jeans, and Nike shoes would still be allowed. You could still strike it rich. Ending poverty wouldn't lead to social collapse, nor would it erase income inequality. There is so much in America today that we could make meaningful gains in equality, certainly enough to abolish poverty, and still have miles and miles of separation between the top and bottom. The end of poverty would bring a net gain in broad prosperity. In today's America, we can ascend to incredible heights and amass great fortunes, and yet poverty surrounds us. It's there in the morning paper, on our commute to work, in our public parks, dragging us all down, making even those quite secure in their money feel diminished and depressed. Poverty infringes on American prosperity, making it a barricaded, stingy, frightened kind of affluence. Prosperity without poverty would carry a different feeling. Imagine what your life would be like if we abolished poverty. You would go to bed at night worrying far less about being victimized by crime, for a country that shares its wealth is a much safer country. You'd check the news in the morning and the top stories of the day would not be about a spike in evictions or hours long lines at the food bank or the latest exploitative escapade of some corporation. You'd walk out your door and feel lighter, more secure, as you wouldn't see sprawling tent encampments or the exhausted faces of the working poor commuting to their jobs. And whatever your lot in life, you'd know that a sudden change in fortune wouldn't tip your family into destitution. If we had to boil it down to a single concept, we might just say that without poverty, we'd be more free. A nation invested in ending poverty is a nation that is truly, obsessively committed to freedom.
That is all for this week. I will see you next week, same time, same place, on The Money with Katie Show. Our show is a production of Morning Brew and is produced by Hannah Velez and me, Katie Gaddy-Tossan, with our audio engineering and sound design from Nick Torres. Devin Emery is our chief content officer and additional fact-checking comes from Kate Brandt.